0: This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au Okay, so we are in a series at the moment called Longing for Love. We are number three in and I want to just give you a quick recap of where we've been so far. So, so far we've talked about that our view of where love comes from So our view of where love comes, where we stand on love, or our definitions, if you like, determines how we approach all those other questions you can see there on the slide as that person goes up the steps. So things like, you know, what are issues about freedom and sexuality and gender and marriage and singleness? That all rests on what our definition of love is or what our view of love is. So Dan talked about that, started at the first step talking about the fact that our, where we're going to come from in this series is that God is love. And he talked about about that and gave us some really fantastic verses and oriented to that. And then Michael, two weeks ago, talked about, oh, there's Michael over there, talked to two weeks ab- ago about, took us up to the second step, what is love, and talked through four different kinds of love, drawing on C.S. Lewis and his four loves. So they were Philia, Eros, oh, I can never say this one, Sorge, Sorg. Yeah. <laughs> Storge, with a a, a T, yes, storge and agape. And agape, if if you were here a fortnight ago, is God's unconditional, eternal, forever love. Thank you, Shirley. So this week... We're not going to keep walking up the steps, actually. We're going to pause on that number two. We're going to stick with what is love because I want to dig a bit deeper into what is agape love, what is God's agape love. And it might seem a a bit of a roundabout way for me to get there. Um, We're going to start. We're talking about pigs and other things first, but we do get to the love bit a bit later. So let's dive in. We're going to start with Matthew 7. So if you've got a Bible, open it. If not, you can just read up here. So let's read together, coming from chapter 7, verse 1, and we're going to read through to, to about verse 8 or 9. So, this is Matthew. I'll give you a bit of context here, actually. So Jesus is, is actually talking to um, a bunch of people in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. So he's talking about, um, he's talking, preaching, he's talking about, um, you know, blessed are the poor, and, and you might remember some of those words. He's basically just telling about the kingdom. And so he's a bit into this kind of talk. And we're reading from Matthew. And Matthew is actually a biography of Jesus through the eyes of one of his disciples called Matthew. So this is what Jesus says. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. Take first the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give the dog's what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So in particular, I want to really rest on, uh, I think it's verse 6 in this passage. So that is, do not give dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs, or they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I find the, the Passion Translation a little bit easier Who would hang earrings on a dog's ear? Or throw pearls in front of wild pigs? They'll only trample them under their feet and turn around and tear you to pieces. Okay, so I want to go back to the title here. Who were the pigs? And now that we've read the verse, it might make a little bit more sense. We're talking about some pigs here. And I do actually want to answer this question as we go through our talk today. Who is Jesus talking about when he talks about Throwing pearls to pigs. Who are the pigs? Well, I must admit. I mean, I have a background in the church, and I've heard this a few times. And I must admit, this verse I've never really quite understood. I've always kind of had that, Jesus, what do you want about when you say this? I haven't quite understood it. And there are always different interpretations of what Jesus said. That and that's fine. Um, but as we, um, you know, one of the mainstream interpretations of this, I guess, is um, is that is that um, and I'll, I'll go through here what one of the mainstream interpretations is there are other interpretations but when we sort of look at them look across them all this is kind of the one that seems to stand out the most that most people would say this is this is maybe what it's talking about that we need to hold the gospel or the scriptures and the gospel and the scriptures is often talked about in this sense as the pearl so don't throw your pearls to pigs. so don't give the gospel or the scriptures. Um, um, that we need to hold the gospel or the scriptures in such high esteem that we don't just toss them around to anyone, especially those who might trample the scripture or the gospel or the word underfoot, in the mud, and belittle it. In other words, that there are people in our own lives and in our culture who just don't see or won't see or understand the beauty of what we have to give them. And so we need to practice some discernment about who we do or don't share the gospel with. And we have to be wise and discerning about that. Sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? So, just to stop there, have a think about who might have come to mind in your head when I was talking about that. Was there a person or a group of people or someone from your past or present that you know? Keep your hands down. I really don't want to know. (laughs) Keep it inside. But we will come back to that later. Okay. My question in reading this passage is this. What if Jesus is actually saying something else here? What if Jesus is saying something a bit more um, life-changing and revolutionary in this passage? Well, I actually think he is. And we need to go back a couple of verses in order to get some context. So, just going back to uh, verse 1 to 5. So it's, don't judge or you'll be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you'll be judged. With the same measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your own eye and pay attention? No, appen- no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let's take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a great big plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the plank in your own eye and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So I had a coffee with a friend this week. And when I got home, Mick said to me, how was coffee? And I said, well, I found it really hard to get through the front door because of the great big plank in my eye. And then when I sat down, every time I turned my head, I took out the woman at the table next to me, and I couldn't see my food because of the plank in my eye. It was crap. (laughs) We know that Jesus is being quite ridiculous here, don't we? He, He knows that we don't walk around with planks in our eyes or splinters. But actually, we kind of all get this verse at some level, don't we? We know immediately that Jesus is talking about us judging someone else when we are actually weighed down by the same behaviour and worse. Why do we see the brokenness in others, but we don't see it in ourselves? I think we can see this quite easily because Jesus is doing a meme, kind of like being up with the social media commentary of first century Palestine. He created a ridiculous meme that we can all relate to. So... Jesus, in these verses, is memeing us into what he's talking about here. He's talking about the way that we see. And then when we get to the next verse, I think Jesus sticks with the memes, actually. Instead of talking about planks and splinters, he's talking about dogs, and he's talking about pigs and pearls. But I don't think that Jesus sticks with the way he talks about this and changes his message, I think actually Jesus sticks with his message here too. I don't think he talks about the way that we see and judge others in verse 1 to 5, and then switches to talking about the way we need to practice judging others through discernment. I think Jesus continues to talk about the way that we see and judge other people here. In other words, he's drawing us into reflecting on our own perspectives, about the lens through which we see other people around us. So I think he's saying this, that just like we can have a plank in our own eye and therefore don't see what don't see clearly ourselves clearly we can also sometimes inadvertently see other people as pigs or dogs or in other words dehumanize them and when we do we build a fence between us and them and we categorize them as less than or different than us and we place them on the other side of the fence in the mud i think jesus is here painting another meme about the ridiculousness of how we choose to see other people. And it's kind of like he's saying, you have this precious gift that's a string of pearls, and yet you choose to see my people as pigs or dogs and throw my gift at them. And if you do, what will they do? Well, the pearls are going to be ripped to shreds and stomped in the mud. And why? Not because you've chosen to give my pearls to pigs and dogs, but because that's what people do when they've been insulted and demeaned. They will snort and growl at your condescension and they'll go for your throat and that's no surprise. Because you've treated them as less than who they are and who they have made, been made to be. So that's what I think this verse is saying and I'd like to unpack that a little bit more today in this talk. I think Jesus is pointing out not one but two broken ways that we see. Two broken perspectives, and I'd like to talk about those. So, first is the way that we see other human beings, and the second is the value of the pearls, and they both actually go really beautifully together. So, first, how are we going? Are we all right we, with me so far? Cool. Okay, so the first is how do we see other people? The truth is, other people are tricky. People are difficult. I think we all kind of get that, don't we? I like the way Glennon Doyle, in her newer book, Untamed, puts that. She says, I am a sensitive, introverted woman, which means I love humanity, but actual human beings are tricky for me. I love people, but not in person. For example, I would die for you, but not like meet you for coffee. We all laugh at that because there's a little bit of truth in that for all of us, I think and you say okay so people are tricky but i do not treat them as pigs well now i get to throw a bit of sociology at you there's this classical sociologist long gone called george simmel and he talks about how in society we cast some people we cast other people sometimes as strangers not a stranger in the sense of i don't know you but casting people as a certain type of person that we characterise by what he or she does not share with society rather than what they do. So the stranger is someone who lives amongst us and in our society and is to some extent accepted, but still somehow foreign. So they are near, but they are far. And that's called ambivalence. So a contemporary example of this might be a refugee or a migrant worker, international student, a Muslim person, or in church culture, an LGTBQI or A person. And that means lesbian, gay, transsexual, bisexual, queer, intersexual, intersexual or asexual. Bauman. Zygmunt Bauman, to be precise, is another sociologist who is much more recent, but he's dead as well. He also talks about the stranger. He builds on Simmel's idea that the stranger is ambivalent. So remember that means kind of near but far. As socially in, but socially not in. And he says that we come to fear strangers and we talk about them as they or the other, not as we or ours. Even if they're sitting alongside us in a conference or next to us on the bus when we externalize or put difference between and distance between ourselves and others, we can then begin to fear them and ignore them, and we don't take responsibility for them, and we turn them into something less than human beings. And Bauman reminds us, just in case we don't think that this applies to us, is that we all imagine and generate our own strangers. His primary argument for this is through the book he wrote called Modernity and the Holocaust. And soberingly, it is about the Holocaust as an example of how we take no responsibility for others by externalising them as strangers. And he asks this question of all of us, even today, because he only wrote this in the 90s. If you had lived in the time of Hitler, do you think that you would have stood up to the violence of the time? I could give you a minute to think about that, but you probably need 10 or probably 10 years. But if your answer is, you bet I would have stood up to that violence, then think again. Baumann goes through a lot of the research that has been done since that time, and he writes this. By conventional clinical criteria, no more than 10% of the SS, so that's the, army, the German army, could have been considered abnormal. The overwhelming majority of SS men, leaders, as well as rank and file, would have easily passed all the psychiatric tests ordinarily given to American army recruits or Kansas City policemen. The point here is that the vast majority of those who perpetrated genocide, and this is not just in Germany, it's genocide all over, these people were, as Anna Herent has reminded us, people who were terrifyingly normal. And what she is saying, that normal is actually terrifying when we turn people into strangers. They were able to commit genocide due to a range of different factors. And going back to Bauman here, but he writes that the primary reason that the Jews and 13 million others, not just Jews, were made to be seen that this was able to happen because they were made to be seen as less than human. Historians in general agree that dehumanisation didn't happen because the Germans were mobilised to act against these people or incited to violence, in other words, but rather they played on the natural, traditional resentments that Germans had of those that they cast as strangers. So this included Jews, Romani, Slavs, people with disabilities, gay and lesbian people, people from various religious backgrounds or different political affiliations. That is what Hitler built on. He was able to cast these people as socially distant, as different, as less than themselves. And over time, the Germans came to see these people less and less as the neighbours next door and more and more as distant and someone that didn't, they didn't have to take responsibility for until they could simply use the modern elements of, traditional, of, sorry, of rational and technical bureaucratic decision-making to efficiently bring about their destruction. So Bauman says this, that morality, and he he defined morality as taking responsibility for the other, the other that we often cast as strangers. So he says morality seems to conform to the law of optical perspective, in other words, how we see. Morality or responsibility looms large when people are close to us, but with the growth of distance... Responsibility for the other shrivels and it blurs until it reaches a vanishing point and it disappears from view. In other words, when we put social distance and difference between us and others, we also seem to take less and less responsibility for them until that responsibility vanishes and we take none at all. Jesus was the brilliant sociologist. He just put this thing in the same way way before Bauman and way before Seymour. He says, when we see people as less than human, and he uses the very effective device of pigs and dogs and pearls, we dehumanise them and we separate them from ourselves. And we do this because of their nature or their culture or their gender or their sexuality or ethnicity or political affiliation. We establish their less than humanness and we place them squarely in the mud and build a fence between them and us. And Jesus says, when we do this, we cannot love them. Bauman and Jesus are also saying that it's not just governments, it's not just policies, and it's not just people like Hitler and his henchmen. It's you and it's me. We all draw the lines in the sand about who is in and who is out. We all have our own ways in this culture and place and time, turning people into metaphorical pigs, people who don't fit our ideas of who we need to take responsibility for and love. So, a question at this point. Who is it that you and I put a snout on? Or a curly pig's tail? Or viewers having a dog's snarl? Is it those who don't take a progressive view of politics like you do or people who are conservative and so entrenched in their traditional or or neoliberal views? Is it Trump supporters who you just can't fathom? Is it a friend or neighbour who you just don't understand? Is it those young people who just seem (laughs) aliens to you and should just stop eating smashed avocado and buy themselves a house, start adulting and get off their phones? Is it old people who just seem really judgmental and can't see that it's because of them that I'll never have a house? Is it wealthy people who seem blind to their complacency in perpetuating inequality? Is it poor people who just need to start believing in themselves and get it together. Who is it for you? And maybe cast your mind back to earlier when we were thinking about the people that came to mind when we said you need to be discerning about who you give the gospel to. Who is it for you? This is not about judging anyone, by the way. This is about recognising for all of us that we all put snouts, at the very least, on other people. So, moving from how we see others to our second point. And the second point I want to make is this. When we see others as less than human and so dehumanise them, we also have a really broken view of the gift that we have and that we hold. When we see others as less than human, we have a broken view of the gift that we have and hold. I actually really agree agree with mainstream commentators on the interpretation of this in at least one thing, that Jesus places a really high value on the gift, on the pearls. Begs the question, though, doesn't it? What is the gift that Jesus is talking about? What do the pearls mean in this picture? And again, I think the answer is really consistent with the message Jesus is giving his people here. The gift is a new way of seeing. It's a new perspective. It's a new way of being. And Jesus actually is the one who can give it. So let's unpack that a bit more. So we talked before about that, the gift often being talked about in terms of the gospel or the scriptures. And we've talked about it over the last few weeks too, that the gift of God to humanity or the gospel is actually God's love story to us. In our first um, week of looking at this, Dan brought this up, 1 John 4 verse 7. It said quite succinctly here, That this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the pearl and this is the starting point for how to see others in the world. So this time two years ago, our family were doing a bit of a caravan trip around Western Australia and we spent about 10 days in the northwestern part of Western Australia in a little town. Town, yes, called Broome, gorgeous place, loved it, and we stayed there for a bit longer than we're intending to because we really just had an awesome time. But Broome is known for a few things. One of those things is that it's the pearl capital of Australia. I was going to say even the world, but maybe there's some, you know, mecca pearl places elsewhere in the world. But it's certainly the pearl capital of Australia. So, being good little tourists, we um, took ourselves off for a half-day tour to the Willie Creek. Uh, pearl farm. It was really fascinating to see and to learn why pearls are precious and I've never been a kind of pearl or bling person so I've never given it much thought but it was really interesting to see and understand why they are actually um, precious and it's not because they're rare which is also in part true but it's because a little bit more like diamonds it's the process that they go through to become so we all know that they grow in oh here I've got a photo for you, Mim will love this (laughs) So, Mimi actually got to harvest a pearl, which in the end, I think that, that it was worth around $70 or something, but the week before that we were there, they had, some random tourist had been able to harvest a pearl and it was worth like 20 grand, so it's actually a bit of a, uh, um, yeah, like whatever comes out of the pearl is, is what you get, but Mimi, um, I didn't get lucky. you didn't get lucky, that's right. So that would cost about 70, bucks. 70 bucks, that's right. It was still fun, though. So we know that um, oysters grow in pearls. So pearls grow in oysters, sorry. But if oysters actually had their way, pearls would never exist. This is what's so fascinating about them. So what happens is that the oyster is sitting in the bottom of the seabed or wherever it is, and a piece of junk floats by and it lodges itself into the oyster. And the oyster, like, we, like our human skin, like if we get a splinter in our skin, we will... Um, the, our skin will produce a kind of pus and then try and eject it. The oyster does the same. What it does is it secretes this kind of snot or pus-like um, substance and encircles the piece of junk and tries to eject it. Okay, But if it doesn't work, the substance hardens and it forms a crust, like a luminescent crust around the pearl. And the bigger and the more valuable the pearl, it really means the more layers of snot and pus have been layered <laughs> over this thing. And it's been made into something beautiful. At the time, I wrote this in my journal. Some of the most hard-won pearls of wisdom that humans are capable of often come from the foreign bodies in our system, things we don't want or didn't ask for, things we'd do anything to get rid of or have cut away. But when they're not, when they stay despite all, and we have to learn to live with them and even learn from them and grow into them and around them, then there are pearls to be harvested. Beautiful insights, deep wisdom, four-dimensional love, states of being that only come from walking through the storm and sitting with the pain. So I'll come back to that. I've just got to do a little tangent for a minute. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for the word throw, as in don't throw your pearls to pigs, comes from the Greek to teach or preach. So this is also telling in what Jesus is saying. The rulers and the teachers of the law in Jesus' time We're really big on doing the right thing and then telling others how to do the same, preaching that, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. But Jesus is challenging this really deeply. He's saying, you cannot teach my gift at people. Pearls, or the gift that I have and that I am, they're hard won. And they are lived representations of a life that is lived and is layered with snot, It's lived and layered with the tears of suffering, if you like, like mine. The gift of the gospel... The gift of the gospel... Hang on, I'm supposed to go back there. The gift of the gospel of Jesus' love is hard won. It isn't something that you know in your head. It is not something you know in your head. It is something you are given as a way of seeing. And it's often born through the hard layers of life. Over the last few years, there have been a number of times that I have found myself on my knees, crying out to God, how do I love this person, God? I don't know how. I can't. I actually can't do this myself. I don't have it in my human self to love like I know you want me to love. You're going to have to give it to me. Jesus helped me love and there was a six month period of time when I did this in earnest (laughs) and I cried out to God often and each time God gave me the same response it was John 3 verse 16 it's kind of like (laughs) the verse that if anyone knows from the Bible it's usually this one for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life I've known that verse since I was a kid I never really understood it, to be honest. Never thought, never really knew why it was so, you know, well-loved. And I asked God over and over, why? What is it about this verse? What are you saying? How does that help me? How does that help me, love? What do you want me to do? Die? And each time, God said the same thing. Yes, I do. I want you to die to yourself. I want you to die to your dreams. I want you to die to your expectations of who you think that person should be, who, wh- how they should be, what they should do, how they should see the world, how you think they need to change. Because that's not my perspective, it's yours. And your perspective won't bring them life. Only I can do that. Because the gift is that I love them first. John 3, verse 16, are words I said, you know, I've known since I was a kid, but I actually really never understood them. And that I was called to do the same, and that it would really cost me. Love isn't saying the right thing to people, love isn't preaching or teaching. God is love. And in Jesus, God is given a face, and we get to see through his eyes. In Jesus, God is given a face, and we get to see through his eyes. Love is being like Jesus and seeing through Jesus' eyes. And what did Jesus do? He loved first. Before he saw me or anyone as an issue or an outsider or a stranger or broken. Before he saw them as sexually deviant or lost or hard-hearted. Before he saw their gender or their status or the status of their home. Before he saw them as diseased or poor before he saw them as a Muslim, or a Christian, or an atheist, or someone who needed converting. I'll never forget the day earlier in my life, when a uni- university friend of mine was at my home, and she said to me, you know what, Julia? Sometimes I get the feeling that I'm just someone that you might get to convert, like an agenda. And the worst bit about that for me wasn't that she said it, although that was bad enough. <laughs> it was at least honest. The worst bit for me that she was right. When I searched out my heart, I knew she was right. I didn't love her first. I just wanted her to conform to my idea of what it looked like to be a Christian. If I hadn't turned her into a pig, I'd at least given her a snout. This isn't love. Love is seeing through Jesus' eyes, not our own. And God's love is a first century gift to a world that is lost in roles and rules and rightness. And it continues to be Jesus' gift to a 21st century world that is lost in identities and politics and desire and the slavery that is freedom without boundaries. So, as I come to the last bit of the talk, I would still like to answer this question, who are the pigs? One of the things I love about Jesus, here's Jesus. If you haven't watched The Chosen, this is Jesus in The Chosen. It's a series on Netflix. No, it's not. It's a series on YouTube. Thank you. I recommend it. That's good. It's about the story of Jesus' life. One of the things I love about Jesus, and that this is actually the point of his message, is that he doesn't just come and preach at people. After the Sermon on the Mount that we read the passage from, Jesus spends the next part of his days and his ministry living out exactly what he's just spoken about. Not only do we hear Jesus' words, but we see them in action through his life. And it is in this action that Jesus shows us exactly who the pigs are. So first, he comes across a man with leprosy. The man with leprosy. Leprosy is a terrible disease of that time. And basically it cast people outside of the city walls. Like Jews, they couldn't come to the temple. And the way to worship God and to be close to God was to be in the temple. They couldn't do that. So they were cast as perpetually unclean and pretty much cast as a pig by the people of their society. But Jesus actually touches him and heals him. So he wasn't the pig. Then Jesus, as he continues walking along, he's accosted by a centurion. He bails him up and says, Jesus, please heal one of my servants. Now, centurions were outsiders in the Jewish world because they represented, a centurion represented the hostile takeover Of and the slavery of their own people, kind of like a dog ready to tear them apart. This man stood for everything that their own God was against. But as author Preston Sprinkle says, Jesus, Jesus didn't look at him and say, Well, okay, I guess I can go and heal your servant, but let's first have a coffee and talk about the issue of violence. No, you know what Jesus said to him? It was remarkable. He said, "I haven't found anyone in Israel with a faith like yours." The centurion wasn't a pig or a dog to Jesus. Then he comes across a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were worse than lepers and centuri- centurions put together. They were Jews. They was they were Jews, but actually had decided to bat for the other side. So. They were considered by Jews as immoral and almost worse than thieves and murderers. And the grace of God did not extend that far, according to the Jews, to a tax collector. But Jesus just says to this tax collector, follow me. There's No background check, just a call of love. The tax collector wasn't the pig. But then... Jesus comes across two demon-possessed men living in a cemetery. These men were so shunned by society, they were mad, they were naked, crazy and dangerous and they lived in the place of the dead. They were the untouchable version. Humans stripped of all humanity and as far as humanly possible from being able to worship God in that time, according to the Jews. They're actually the wild pigs of the day. Coincidentally, although I think not, there was an actual herd of pigs over there nearby. And what did Jesus do? Well, he sent the demons into the pigs. And he restored the dignity and humanity of the men. It's like he was saying, Don't you see? I see with the eyes of the Father. And his gift, his pearl, it's me. Pigs can have the demons, but God's people, they're mine. And I love them first with an agape, unconditional, eternal love. People are never pigs to Jesus. The answer to the question perhaps it's a bit of a letdown, but the pigs are the pigs, and the dogs are the dogs. Agape love does not see a stranger or a danger but that it sees human beings who are first loved by God, full of beauty and purpose. I think we'd be quite surprised at who Jesus might stop and love if he walked among us today. Today's versions of tax collectors, or those we might consider to be, past the point of repentance for whatever reason. Pimps, drug dealers, terrorists, corporate tax avoiders, people with complex psychosis, the poor insanely wealthy politicians I think we'd be quite surprised at who Jesus might walk up to and say follow me hearts are transformed and they flourish under the miracle of being loved so as we go deeper into this series and talk particularly about the issues that shape our identities and our sexuality and who we love, my encouragement is this Remember what Dan and Michael have talked about in the last few weeks, that everything starts with God and rests on God's agape love. It is love first, always. And that's represented here in the first step. So as we start to move up into the different issues that this series tackles, we actually need to stay right there on the first step. As we talk about what the issues of freedom and sexuality and gender and singleness and marriage are, it actually get, it gets easier and easier to see people as issues rather than humans. And we forget the pearl. We can only understand the pearl and therefore all the answer to all of those questions by standing on the first step and staying there. The reality that God is love. And seeing through Jesus' eyes. We often like to finish our talks at least with some practical tips. Pretty difficult one thinking about how do we love like Jesus. (laughs) But I've got a few things, um, a few encouragements to you for today to take away. If you want to write anything down, write these down. Firstly, read Matthew 7 and 8 and ask Jesus to show you what love is. We read about the splinters and the planks and the pearls and the pigs before but as we read on we did touch on this earlier it says in verse 8 or 9 verse 8 I think it says ask and it will be given seek and you shall find knock and the door will be open Jesus hasn't changed tack here he's saying if you want my way of seeing if you want my love you need to ask for it because it's not something that's in your head it's something I give you ask and seek and knock and the door will be opened you I I want to give you my perspective. And that's the next verse. He says, if you've got a son who asks you for a loaf of bread, i.e. for something life-giving, you're not going to give him a stone, are you? Actually, that reminds me of a joke. (laughs) Mick said to me, it's it's such a dad joke. There's a son who says to his dad, Dad, tell me about a solar eclipse. No, son. (laughs) Okay, thank you. So, actually, Jesus' point is not that at all. Sorry, let me go back there. That's not Jesus' point at all. He's saying, ask and seek and knock. And I want to give you. I want to give you my gift. I want to give you my perspective. I want to give you that life. It is a narrow road. That's the next verse, if you want to read on. It says, narrow is the gate. My perspective, it's not easy to find. Most people miss it. So my encouragement here is to get on your knees and ask Jesus to show you how to love. It's a lifelong journey. I'm still on it. I, haven't, I'm, I don't know how to love so often. But ask Jesus because he will show you. My second encouragement here is to listen more than you talk. Preston Sprinkle says this about treating others as people, not issues. It's hard to love someone while you are talking. Love is most authentically shown when you are listening. To listen is to love, and you can't deeply love until you listen. Valerie Kuer notes that deep listening is an act of surrender. We risk being changed by what we hear. So listen to the stories of those who you find it hard to love. Listen to the stories of those who struggle with different identities than you, or claim different identities than you, whether they be political identities, sexual identities, cultural, religious identities, doesn't mean you have to be like them or become like them. Loving is simply recognising that God loved them first and to follow Jesus into that. Amen. Actually, I'd really like to pray at this point. Jesus. We pray that you'll give us your perspective, you will help us to understand that loving others comes from you, that agape love is something that you showed us first, and that you gave us first. Pray that you'll help us to see through your eyes, to stand on that first step, and to know that you are love, and that. The love we can give came because you gave it first to us. And pray that you'll help us to open up our hearts to deeply listen. Listen to others and to allow others' stories to change us. And to not change us to become more like them, but change us, Jesus, to be more like you. To know that what you see in them comes from you and that there is a part of them that is from you. And that we might not know that yet. God, we pray that you'll change us and change us to be people who love. In Jesus' name, amen.